joining us online. Glad that you are joining us. If you're just joining us now, if you are uh, new here, my name is Jeff. I'm the pastor, and uh, I'm glad that you're here. And today we're going to be in John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hard blue one around you. And uh, John chapter 17 is where we'll be. Um, We're going to be in verses 1 through 5 today. We're going to take John 17 in two weeks. Um, But this chapter uh, has been called by some the holy of holies of sacred scripture. I saw that description this week as I was preparing, and I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. Uh, John chapter 17, as I said, the the one we're going to be studying today, um, it is a really, you know, I know preachers always say this, it's an important chapter, they're all important chapters, Uh, but this one is particularly important because of what it contains, uh, which is the final sort of public prayer of Jesus Uh, before he literally steps out into the night and then just a little while later to the cross. Uh, The reformer Philip Melanchthon said this about it, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. And that's what we see uh, in this text. You'll probably have a heading somewhere in that chapter that says the high priestly prayer of Jesus that is what this is referred to. Um, there is a story that the John Knox, the Scottish reformer, heard this read to him every day during his final illness, kind of on his deathbed. Um, this chapter is 26 verses long, but there is just volumes of commentary and sermons written on this, uh, this chapter alone. Uh, one preacher preached 40 45 sermons just on this chapter. Now, I can tell you that we're in week 58 of John, and we didn't spend 45 of those weeks in John 17. Uh, but that is, a, that is a lot of sermons from one particular text. Uh, one Irish scholar, uh, it said that he wrote commentary and expositions on this chapter alone that would have surpassed 500 pages of written exposition and commentary. So what we're going to see is that this prayer is kind of, you can divide it up into maybe three. We're going to divide it into two. Um, And and this week we're going to cover verses one through five in which Jesus kind of essentially prays for himself. And then verses six through 26, if you wanted to, you could divide those up into two, but we're going to take them as one chunk next week. And he's going to pray for others. Specifically, he's going to pray for his disciples. He's going to pray for us, his future disciples, and then he's even going to pray uh, for the world. So let me just, I'm going to read it to us. This is verses 1 through 5 of John 17, and uh, we're going to refer back to it. So if you want to have a Bible in front of you, that would be good, Uh, but it's not a big deal. I'll read it aloud as well. Jesus is speaking here. My version of the electronic version of the Bible has these in red letters, uh, so pay attention when you see that. But this is John 17. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. 
Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus, we come to you now needy, knowing that you can show us things this morning out of this text and what we're about to talk about that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. Holy Spirit, we invite you to illuminate this text to us, to fill us in the way that only you do when we gather together like we are now. And we ask this for the glory of you, our Father. Amen. So in this opening section, what I want you to notice is that Jesus prayed for himself, but specifically he's praying for his own glorification. That's what he's praying for. Verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Okay, so that says something about his relationship with his father, that he's lifting his eyes to heaven. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And in my uh, translation, the word son is capitalized because he's talking about himself. And then in verse five, he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence. So personal glorification is kind of a thread that runs through this little section of John in this prayer by Jesus. And so the glory of God is seen in his self-revelation of who and what God is. That's how we see the glory of God is in the person of Jesus. And so the more God reveals himself, the more we see his glory, right? That's just a pretty simple equation. And so throughout history, we've seen the glory of God in different ways. God has revealed himself in different ways. Everyone sees something of it in nature, according to the scriptures. There's multiple places we could go to. Psalm 19 is our favorite uh, you know, Instagram coffee cup verse, right? The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I've been guilty of it. Took a cool picture of the sky, put that text on it, put it on Instagram, thought it was really cool. Some of us who know and love God have experienced at least a partial sort of revelation of who he is in his glory in like prayer. Maybe you've experienced that or I most often experience that uh, singing in the car by myself to worship songs. Like I just get caught up. I do this thing where I go through a cycle of like the same song over and over and over and I just get moved by it. So I keep going back for more. And that's a, a, a partial revelation of the glory of God, right? And we see an example, a couple examples in the Bible. Moses on Mount Sinai sees a partial picture of the glory of God or a partial revelation. Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're seeing the glory of God, but not the full thing. And then of course, the book we're studying and reading out of uh, is also God's revelation to us as well, and we see his glory in it. But the most important, most complete revelation of God's glory is the person of Jesus Christ. The human God-man Jesus Christ is the fullest expression of the glory of God that we have. And so uh, Jesus is the, the revelation of God's glory that all the other revelations of God's glory point to. You want to know what God's glory looks like? You look at Jesus. This is Hebrews 1.3. He is, speaking of Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Even in scripture, words are hard to find to describe what we're talking about. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus is 
glory of God revealed. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, again, is the light of God. This is a kind of a metaphor, a shadow for what glory is. Because what is glory? It's like this light radiating thing that we can't quite describe, but Jesus reveals it to us. And so in the upper room, Jesus prays that he would further be glorified so that he would be shown more completely for what he is because he's the glory of God. So he wants God to be glorified, but, but how is that going to happen? Well, the answer to that is in what Jesus prayed here in this first section. He's going to be glorified through the cross. He's going to experience glory with God in heaven. And then there is a manifestation of his glory in the church. So that's kind of the three sections we're going to look at today. So first, the cross. Now, Jesus had already glorified the Father by living the life that he lived. He brought glory to God the Father by living a sinless life. And we would argue showing us what humanity actually should look like. This is the new humanity that God is bringing into the world that lives a sinless life. Jesus reiterates this in verse 4. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What was the work that God gave him to do? Live this sinless life, bring the manifestation of God's glory into the world, announce the kingdom that was here and is coming. And so Jesus' life is a permanent monument for all of history to the glory of God. What does the glory of God look like? It looks like a life lived in the way that Jesus lived. He did this through uh, partially what John calls signs, what we might call miracles. John calls them signs a lot in his gospel. But primarily the way Jesus' life brought glory to God was simply his day-to-day dependence on God and his sinless life through that dependence on God and his holiness. But what's primarily in the mind of Jesus as he's saying this prayer is the glory of the cross. And that's a weird phrase. The glory of the cross that is actually coming closer and closer Right? This is because Jesus knows that the cross is going to actually be somehow in God's paradoxical wisdom, the supreme revelation of God's nature and his purpose in the world. So Jesus prays in verse one, the hour has come, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. The cross displayed God the Father. It shows what God the Father is like because John 1, 18, way back in chapter 1, it tells us that Jesus in his life and in his person is the explanation of God. So if this is true, then what, what are we supposed to learn from the cross? What's the cross supposed to teach us? I mean, it's, it does a lot more things than teach us, but for today, what, what do we see? We see that the holiness of God in the cross, we see the holiness of God in the cross like nowhere else. We see God's holiness displayed and manifested in the cross and the act of Jesus like nowhere else. We see that God hates sin. Why does he hate sin? Because it destroys everything that he loves. He he refuses to compromise with sin, which is really good news for us, that he won't compromise with justice and with sin. We also see his love of, of justice in his condemnation of sin, even being willing to pour out his own wrath 
on his own son who bears the sin of the world and makes propitiation or makes atonement for that sin. But ultimately, we see God's love for us in the cross. We see the vastness of the love for us that God has because of the cost he is willing to pay for your redemption and for my redemption. If Jesus had stopped short of the cross, then then that would have proved that there is a degree of love to which God is not prepared to go to redeem you and I. But, But this is what some would call the wretched beauty of the cross, because the cross is not beautiful in and of itself. It is gory and horrific. But this is the wretched beauty of the cross, that the cross proves there is no limit to God's love for you, not even, as the scriptures say, he would not even spare his own son to love you. And so the question for us, it's always the question for us, do we know that love today? Do we know that kind of unending in the Old Testament covenant-keeping love that God has for us? Now, we can't truly know the depth of that love without the cross. I wish we could, right? All, I think all of us, we don't want necessarily the cross, but we have to have the cross because it is the path through which this love takes place. Jesus is called in uh, another place in John, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's called this by John the Baptist, you might remember. The cross was the only way that we could see and see a picture of the infinite depth of God's love for us, that this is how far he's willing to go. Jesus came into the world to glorify God the Father by showing what he's like, and the cross would be the ultimate manifestation of that in a way that nothing else could show. Nothing else could do that. The the deeper our contemplation of that tragic beauty of the cross goes, the deeper our understanding of God goes, and the deeper our understanding of Uh, his love for us, and the more profound our own glorification of God becomes. Because when you understand the depth of God's love for you, you can't help but glorify him and worship him, right? What did Paul do? He breaks out out of nowhere. Oh, the depths of God's love for me, he says in the book of Romans. So as we said, Jesus, as he is praying, his focus is not only on the glory of the cross, but then he looks at his Uh, coming glorification in what we would call heaven. Verse five. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So we're getting a little picture of at least two of the three members of the Godhead existing in eternity past. Now, we have no ability to perceive what Jesus' glory was like before the world existed, right? I mean, it's, it's not conceivable for us. But we do know from even the text we read just a little bit ago out of Hebrews, that Jesus was the creator of a universe so large that we struggle to perceive even how big it is. I found in some commentary this week some scientific stuff about octillion miles, and I was like, I can't even put that in here because I don't even understand how big that is. And so we know, though, that Jesus enjoyed perfect intimacy with the Father and that this was part of the glory that he experienced before 
his life on earth, that he experiences this perfect intimacy with the rest of the Godhead, the Father and the Holy Spirit. There's that famous painting uh, of three people sitting together at a table that depicts the Trinity. I love that painting. But beyond this, we know very little because I think partly because that glory is too much for us. We can't perceive it, wrap our minds around it. But we do know that in order to come in his incarnation, what did Jesus have to do? He had to empty himself. And this has been the topic of hot debate in church history. What does that mean? But Philippians 2, 7 says that he emptied himself, that he set aside his existence of glorious uh, deity in order to come down and live with us in this beautiful and yet fallen creation and then die at the hands of those that he made in his very image. And so C.S. Lewis has this honestly kind of weird but really good attempt of a description of the coming down and of the going up of Christ it's in his book Miracles. He said that this is like, uh, he likened Jesus' plunge to this, quote, it's like that of a man diving from a great height into a dark pool. As the diver is suspended in the air, he forms a colorful figure. But as he parts the waters, he rushes down through green and warm water to black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, and then up again back to color and light. So this is a poetic kind of artistic attempt at describing what is happening in the life of Jesus in his descent to earth and his life here and his death and then his ascent back to glory. But it's a good reminder that for Jesus, there was and there is a glory in what we call heaven that is not currently here on earth. And it's a good reminder that what Jesus intends in the world is not so much to bring us to heaven, but to bring heaven to the creation and to make all things new, and that's what he is about. And so Jesus' prayer here also gives the impression that this glory is something that has to be gained because he speaks of this glory as a consequence of his earthly life and suffering. So we know from the scriptures that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. So so it's, I think, helpful to think about the reality that there is a kind of glory that Jesus also learned about through the suffering that he was looking forward to and through in this moment in his prayer. Listen to Philippians 2 again. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, given him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So From our standpoint today, Jesus has a greater majesty as he sits ruling and reigning in his glorified human body at the the right hand of what we read earlier, the majesty on high, named for God, beautified by his scars from the cross in the same way as Charles Spurgeon would say that a skillful artist makes a figure more lovely than before by the marks of his tools. That there is a glory that Jesus displays now that he wasn't displaying before because he went through the cross and the resurrection. Glory that's already infinite can't be increased, right? Infinite cannot be increased, but this glory is a different, greater glory now because we have a greater understanding of it because of what the cross 
did. And so what we know from the story of the Bible is that Jesus' prayer for glory was answered. God let him have what he prayed for. And someday every one of us who knows and loves Jesus and believes in him is going to experience this glory along with Jesus. So the glory of the cross is a past reality. The the glory of heaven is this already but not yet future coming reality. But there's more here. There's a glory that's being manifested in the world right now. And so between the glorification of Christ in history and the, the coming glorification in heaven, there is another glorification, and that's the church. And when I say church in this moment, I mean big C, global, historic church. And so through the church, Jesus' glory becomes comprehensible, becomes manifested in the world. You want to know what God is like? You go and you see the church. Now, it's a imper- very imperfect representation But in a very real way, not a literal way, the church is the body of Christ in the world. So there's this divine glory that we first saw in heaven, then we see in Christ's life, then in Christ's death. That divine glory can now be seen in his church. Christ is glorified in the church through the lives of his disciples, through you and through me. And so because Christ is manifest in his church, He remembers his followers, even in this part of the heart of his prayer for his own glorification, verses 1 through 5. So the the middle, the core of that prayer, verses 2 through 4, is referring to the church. And Jesus gives specific attention to giving his followers eternal life, which he describes as knowing the Father and the Son. So if you like if you're ever like, what's Christianity all about? It's about eternal life. Well, what is eternal life? Well, John. And Jesus gives us this specific explanation, verses two and three. You have given me, uh, you have given him authority over all the flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, so what is knowing Christ? What is involved in knowing Jesus And what's involved in gaining deeper and deeper and deeper knowledge of him? Well, first, knowing Christ, knowing Jesus, involves knowing something about him, knowing things about him, right? That's that's a first level of it. Uh, In its most recent study on this, Barna has shown that biblical illiteracy in the United States is really high right now. And that's not a judgment, that's just the reality of what is. Fewer than half of American adults uh, can can name the four gospels, which sounds like that's crazy to me. But I I grew up in the church. There's a ton of people who didn't, and that's not their experience. And sixty percent of Americans, according to the study, can't name five of the ten commandments. Now, if you ask me on the wrong day, I might miss one or two. So I get it. It's it's not that people can't read. And it's not even that people don't think the Bible is kind of an important religious holy book. It's just that we're not reading it as much as we used to. And and when I say as much as we used to, don't hear me saying that there was some glory day of holy living. It had its problems too, but we don't know what the Bible says about God, and therefore we don't know much about Jesus. I mean, I've heard all kinds of crazy things about miracles that Jesus supposedly did that he didn't or things that Jesus would do that he definitely wouldn't do 
if you just a simple reading of the Gospels. And so the prophet Hosea said in his day that his people were destroyed for a lack of knowledge in Hosea 4. Paul spoke of his own people as alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, Ephesians 4. And so being ignorant of what the Bible says will leave you insulated from an encounter with Christ. If you don't know what the Bible says about Christ, it's going to be hard for you to have an experience of Christ. And so we first have to learn about Jesus if we want to know him or as part of our experience of getting to know Jesus. But secondly, knowing Jesus involves an intimacy of relationship. Now, these things overlap one another and go back and forth. I'm not speaking in linear order. Any of you that have been in a long-term relationship with a person know that this is true. You find out things about the person you've been, been together with a long time, like way into the relationship, right? I, I, like There's things you find out about your spouse 10 years in, and you're like, oh, Great, now that I know that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to employ that, right? So knowing Christ involves knowing about him, but it involves intimacy of relationship as well. Now, the Old Testament regularly uses the word know for a kind, specific kind of intimate knowledge, right? Uh, Adam knew his wife even bore a son. That's a specific kind of knowledge. There's an intimacy there. And so the idea of knowing in this way uh, suggests a mutual experience. Knowing Christ is not simply knowing just about him, although that's important, but it's having a personal relationship knowledge of him. We have to move from from knowing facts about Jesus to being on a first name basis with Jesus. From, From fan to friend. Like if you've ever had a friend that refers to a famous person that they don't actually know by that famous person's first name, it's weird. I have friends like that. They talk about, you know, an athlete or they talk about a famous person like they're their friend and they refer to them as a first name like Tom Tom Cruise? Is that who you're talking about? Tom? You don't know Tom. But I wonder how many of us do that with Jesus, right? We talk about Jesus. We know a lot of facts about Jesus. But how much time are we spending in relationship with Jesus? This is one of the outward signs of somebody's true conversion, that they know Jesus and that they know that Jesus knows them, that it goes both ways. So then third, knowing Jesus means a knowledge that's not stagnant, but is growing, right? Again, to to use human relationships, uh, if you have kids, you continue to know your kid and you continue to grow and learn. I mean, I have a six-year-old right now and I'm learning what she likes. Like today, I really, okay, got it in my head. She doesn't like eggs for breakfast, which is why I keep making them for her perfectly, I might add, and she doesn't eat them. She wants waffles. So I'm learning more about her, right? It's a, not a stagnant knowledge, but a growing knowledge. When Moses returned from Mount Sinai, having learned these new commandments, we read that his face radiated the glory of God. Paul, in expounding on this in 2 Corinthians 3, said this, and and I know I've read this before, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Notice that it's we all, like all, not just the Moseses, but all of us. The weakest, the poorest, the lowest, all of us participate 
in reflecting the glory of God to the world. And then he says, with unveiled face, God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, when we believe in Jesus, has taken the veil away from our spiritual eyes, has removed that blockage spiritually, and we now can behold the glory of the Lord. We can see Jesus for what he really is. We see him through his word. And we see him through the work of the Spirit among us. We are being transformed into the same image as Jesus from one degree of glory to another. It's gradual, which is great news. And so this literally is saying that a metamorphosis is taking place. That's the word there. A gradual change as we continue growing in glory. And so the, the more we look to Christ, the more we're changed into looking like Christ, which is the point of Christian discipleship, to be with Jesus, to do what Jesus would do if he were you. We become like Christ. Well, why did Christ mention our knowing him within this prayer for his own glorification. Now, why would that be there? That's kind of strange. Well, our growing knowledge and our growing experience of Christ as his church, right? Big C church, as his body, as his presence here on the earth means a growing revelation and glory for the world to see. That the more the church looks like Jesus, the more the world gets to see Jesus and the more glory Jesus brings to God the Father. And so we all as true believers show Christ to some degree and in some way to the world around us. That is why Jesus prays for us. From sort of the ground level of life here in this world, believers, the church, is the best hope that the world is going to see the glory of God and be transformed. This is how God works. Jesus, our Christ, made the Father's glory comprehensible. And we as Christians, which again literally means little Christs, are to do the same thing, to bring God's glory into the world so that people will see it and be transformed. There's a direct relationship between our knowledge of and our relationship with Jesus and the glory of God that will be displayed in us. How much we, however much we allow the knowledge of Jesus to fill our being, to fill our minds, yes, but our spirits as well, and I would even argue your body. When you pray and you adopt a posture of prayer, you are allowing the glory of Jesus to even come into your physical experience. When we take communion in a little while, that is going to involve our physical bodies because creation is good. So how much we allow the knowledge of Jesus to fill all of that will determine how much of the, the old self will, will fall away and how much of the glory of God will be revealed in us from one degree to another. We, we have to know Jesus. We have to know his glory for that to happen in us, though. And so we have to look long and hard and intently at Jesus. And we do this through his word, and we do this through meditation, and we do this through contemplation, we do this through prayer, and all those things. We look at Jesus, and we look at him, and we take in his glory, and we are transformed by it. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is how we bring glory. This is what Jesus prayed for, that he would be glorified. Let me end with this from Philippians 3. 
We, we make the Apostle Paul's prayer, our prayer, that we may know him and the power of his resurrection, that we may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, which brought glory to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you once again for bringing us here this morning. We thank you that we're able to gather in this place and, and just freely talk about your glory, your spirit, and have no fear of anything happening to us because we're in this room this morning. We thank you that you've given us a building to sit in and nice chairs with air conditioning and all these things so that we can look at you and see your glory through what Jesus has done on the cross. And so I pray that uh, Jesus' prayer would be answered in us, that we would bring glory to you, our Father, through the power of your Spirit in us. And we do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.